So it's said that um, really all ministers just have three, four, five at the most sermons. The trick is to pick the right three or four or five sermons so that they're deep enough that over the course of your preaching, you can go deeper with them. That as you change, as the congregation change, as the faces change, that nothing feels like it's getting repeated over and over again too much. Kind of like a spiral. You're covering over the same ground, but at the same time it is deeper and different. This reminds me of one of the first sermons, back before I called them messages, one of the first sermons I ever preached, and it was about death and memory and God and impermanence and the hope, the hope that we hold, I think, in all of our hearts that there may indeed be a deeper resting place for everything that we love in spite of the fragility of our lives. And so in that sermon over a decade ago, I held aloft a ticket, a ticket that was from Doc Gooden's May 1996 no-hitter at Yankee Stadium, at which I was present. At the last minute, someone offered me a ticket, and I said, of course I'll go, not knowing that I would see history that night. It was a favorite token from one of my favorite places, Yankee Stadium. Before I knew anything about religious community, before I knew church, that was my cathedral my cathedral of baseball. The place holds so much of me since I was a boy, over 30 years of my life. And unfortunately, what I hold here today is not the ticket to that game. It's actually the ticket to yesterday's Phillies game. Go Phils. Because that reminder of impermanence that I held on to for all those years, it itself became impermanent when I lost it in the move from Florida back up to the Northeast. I don't have that ticket any longer. And what I didn't think possible, what I knew theoretically a decade ago when I preached that message about Yankee Stadium, knowing that it was a created thing and like all created things held so much of me and yet was going to become impermanent, what I thought was only theory a decade ago, sometime far out on the horizon of my life or the horizon of someone else's life, it became reality last Sunday night. And so last Sunday night I sat on my couch with tears in my eyes and on my cheeks as Brian Roberts hit an easy two-hopper to Cody Ransom, who stepped three steps to the bag, and that was it. Yankee Stadium would host no more games. I would never know myself in that place in the present tense again. Up against that limit the limit that we experience when we know deep in our hearts, not just in a theoretical way, what impermanence is, that everything that is created is impermanent, that everything that is born at one point is also dying. Now, the stadium is just a thing. It's just a place, an important one for me, but it is for me as well. And maybe you have your other favorite places. It was my original, as a sociologist say, third place, that place I would go when I would feel absolutely at home. But when we experience the limits and the ends of the things that we love, it is an intimation of our own mortality. Confronted by the impermanence of the things that we love, we have those moments of recognition and it absolutely hits home as deeply as anything religious ever can. The idea, not just the idea, the knowledge that I will die. The I that is I, the me that is me will die. The you that is you will die. 
at least not like this any longer. We will not be like this at one point. Now, if we listen to that moment, moments, and they can be very scary, if we listen to that moment, our religion begins. Our religion starts right there and right then. I read a beautiful, haunting article in New York Magazine this past week. It's about a man who, when he reaches the age of about 50 and his mother's about 85, she starts to show the signs of Huntington's disease, that degenerative brain disorder for which there is no cure. And he has to go through a long process of asking himself, will he get the genetic test that will reveal whether he has the gene that will someday activate in his brain? And the disease will be a part of his life. And he had these words from the genetic doctor who did his testing, his counselor, who said to him, once you know, you can't not know. Once you know, you can't not know. This message series, talking about this tough stuff, is all about those moments when once we know, we can't not know anymore. Once we come into that full awareness of all that life contains, we can't not know it. Because at the same time that the tough stuff is so difficult, it's also when we encounter our limits, our greatest growth occurs because we can live through those limits and transcend them and go beyond a life that is lived fearfully, a life, as the Buddhists talk about, that is attached in the sense that we hold on and we hold on and we hold on to things that are impermanent and it causes us to suffer so deeply. There is no boundary, more limit, more pressing in upon us as human beings than, of course, death is. So this message series is really not just about talking, although that is what I am doing. Really, the encouragement behind what this message series is supposed to do is to encourage us and me as well, is to integrate the tough stuff, not just talk about it, practice the tough stuff, relate to the tough stuff, because that is where we really are changed as human beings. And when we experience this kind of change, we recognize that there are really just two words that exist at the very heart of all true spiritual teaching. It's this, and it's bold, and it comes with an exclamation point. Wake up. Wake up. All real spiritual teaching says that. My favorite sentence from Jesus is very simple, also with an exclamation point. Sleepers awake. Sleepers awake. Buddha before it was a noun, a proper noun referring to a figure, was an adjective. It means one who is awakened. Thoreau, our, our great sage in our tradition, that great experimenter in what he called deliberate living. You all know the name Walden, but do you remember the subtitle to Walden? Where I lived and what I lived for. What I lived for. He said he went to the woods to front only, to face only the essential things in life. Whatever life was, he was going to understand it and not delay any longer his sense of what was most essential, most meaningful. All great spiritual teachers, if, if their words are worth the paper they are printed on or the air that they breathe when they teach, say this, please. Please do not sleepwalk through your lives. Do not sleepwalk. Well, I want to show you something right now that is from one of my favorite spiritual teachers. My favorite teacher, interesting thing about him, he always teaches in the negative. It's Homer Simpson. <laughs> this is the great episode called 
One fish, two fish, blowfish, bluefish. Homer, prodded by Lisa, is it meatloaf night again? Let's go out and try some sushi. And Homer, at first resistant, finds out he absolutely loves sushi and orders everything on the menu, but the head chef, the one who is only really trained to cut the dangerous fugu, the blowfish, is out of the kitchen. And so the apprentice chef does it, and Homer is served the fugu, just about to be served the fugu. And they come back and they tell him, we don't know if we served your poison or not. You will know in 24 hours whether when you live or your heart suddenly explodes. And so Homer, in these last 24 hours of his life, he makes his lists. Everything, everything most meaningful that he wants to do with the time left to him. And at the very end of the episode, after he has checked everything off his list, after he has told his family in the last best way he can that he loves them so much, he goes downstairs and listens. This is like 91, 92. So he listens on a cassette to Larry King reading the entire Bible. And he falls asleep. And Marge comes down in the morning and sees him slumped over. And she thinks, my God, he's dead. But in fact, if you like The Simpsons, you know he drools a lot. She touches his drool. It is warm. He's alive. And he just wakes rapturously up and says, this is amazing. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And then as the credits roll, we see Homer on that next Saturday afternoon and Please excuse me if this is your idea of living life to the fullest. I don't think that's what they're saying. Eating pork rinds light, watching bowling. <laughs> he has not taken the challenge, not taken the opportunity of his encounter with his limitations, with his potential death. He does not follow what truly one of my favorite spiritual teachers says, Thomas Merton. The Cistercian monk who really bridged East and West, then teaching in his own native Catholic mystical teaching, he says this, he teaches this, as soon as we recognize ourselves as alive, as soon as we recognize ourselves as truly alive, we become aware that we tend towards death. If we do not gain some adequate understanding of our life and our death, our life will become nothing but a refusal, a series of complaints that it must end in death. Thoreau, again, one of the things I love is he didn't live this way at all. It might be apocryphal, but it's said that when he was on his deathbed, a very stern religious aunt of his asked one of his friends as he made his peace with God yet. And Thoreau, overhearing it, said, I wasn't aware we'd ever quarreled. That's what it is to be able to, even when we reach the end, to know that we have made sense and meaning of our lives, that life is not a quarrel, life is not an argument. Rather, it is an invitation. Rather, it is an invitation. It is the invitation to receive, not life after death, although I don't leave those questions alone. I think it's very important to honor those questions, but it is an invitation to know life, true life, before death, so that we might know it in some real way after, perhaps. You've heard me use this term before if you've been around. I am a hopeful agnostic when it comes to the question of what comes after. And agnostic, I don't mean a disbeliever. That word is used improperly. Agnostic means if you break down the original Greek, it just means without knowledge. I have not personally had knowledge of the afterlife yet, but I remain very hopeful, 
even more so now than I was at another point in my life. There was a fascinating article in Time Magazine this past week. I don't know how many of you saw it. It featured a guy named Dr. Sam Parnia, who's associated with the Cornell Medical Center in New York City. And he's heading up what they call the Human Consciousness Project. What they are studying and what he has been studying the last decade, he has spoken with over 500 people who have had those near-death experiences. Those experiences where clinically they are pronounced dead, and yet they are resuscitated, and when they are resuscitated, they come back with very clear memories, pictures, experiences. Perhaps raises the distinction that there is a difference between our physical brains and our mind, our consciousness. Dr. Parnia describes these experiences of talking to these people as eye-opening and humbling. And he is struck over and over again by the remarkable consistency of the stories they tell. Now, I think in many ways he is a man, a person of science, truly open-minded, open to investigating the deepest mystery there is in our existence. My preferred description, the best thing I have ever read about what the afterlife may be like, is from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, a source that I know some of you have read before. What it says is that when we die and we leave this realm, we are exposed to the most boundarylessness, the clear right light of reality. And this light, what it does, is basically it wants to absorb us, sort of take us in, take us home, the essence, the source, God, whatever you want to call it. The name matters little. Now, if we have not lived a life up until that point in which we have known the experience of being unified with something bigger, deeper, larger than ourselves, you know what we will do at that point? According to the Beckon Book of the Dead, we will run away. It will scare us. That experience will scare us. And so, one of the reasons I love this description is what it says is that if we might know then, we need to start knowing now. The experience of what true connection, true belonging means. It can be very daunting, I know, to try and keep this at the front of our minds, this idea that someday, yes, and perhaps sooner than we think, it will come to an end. But truly, if we, what they say, they call it practicing our death, we will not fear it, but rather it will be liberating. Rather, we will be liberated to live our life most fully. About a month ago in a message, I brought up a book that I think is an absolutely wonderful book, and I encourage you to read it. It's by Stephen Levine, and it's called A Year to Live. Stephen Levine has worked for over 25 years, a quarter century, being by the bedside of people who are dying, being with them, comforting them, helping guide them into that next stage, whatever it is. And what he recognized about his own life is that he was a great teacher, but he still had a lot unresolved within his own life. And so he committed to a practice that started, and this is what the book is about, in which he said he had a year to live. That a year from now, his life in this thought experiment would come to an end. And what he found was miraculous. So much that he was holding on to, so much that he was pulling away from, he connected with old angers, old pains, old relationships that were still gnawing at him, books he wanted to read, trips he wanted to take, the simple experience of just sitting out in his backyard that he didn't give himself time to do. He made time in this year to live because you see it's not a threat. You have a year to live. 
but instead it is a year to live, an invitation. Anne Lamott, the spiritual writer and teacher, she says being around people who are consciously dying, it is like being around people who are pregnant. They live full, round hours in which everything is savored in which everything is meaningful, rather than killing time. I mean, come on, how often do you use that phrase? I remember when I was standing in back of an airport line in an airport some years ago, and this guy had been like, you know, three, four times bumped off his flight, and he kept saying to the person in front of him, I got to kill the time. So I ride the escalator up, and I ride the escalator down, and I just try and kill the time. I try to move beyond it. Kill it, kill it, kill it. Why not sit down and, you know, try and write the great American novel? Why not start in that moment? Instead of killing the time, because I guarantee you, a guy who complains that much in the airport is complaining when he's online in the deli, is complaining when he's online at Wawa, is complaining most of the time. Being able to experience these full round hours of existence, it is realizing the recognition that we can move from killing our time to filling it if we can truly fill the time. We are prepared to say at our end that we have been fully alive. Now, I quoted Thomas Burton before, one of the leading spiritual lights of the last 50 years. Do you know how he died? Age 47, at a spiritual retreat. He was in a bath, and it shorted out some one of the electrical sockets next to it, and he was electrocuted. 47 years old, one of, for me, the deepest incarnations of God's presence that I have ever read. How unfair, how unjust. Doesn't make sense. The justice there is, I think, for us as human beings in the deepest way is that we are creatures who can be mindful of the fact that we are dying. We have the choice to be mindful about our end. Because death can teach us to hold life as fully as we can right here in this moment. If justice is truly the experiencing of getting what is ours, I don't know that there is any deeper justice in this life than the ability for all of us to experience a life that is full and true and meaningful. That is the ultimate justice for us as human beings. And so perhaps, I know some of you today are thinking about those you have loved and lost, You are perhaps saying, why is he talking about death? Would he please shut up? Or perhaps you're feeling an anxious energy coming over you. Perhaps you're feeling, I don't like to talk about this. Well, neither do I, which is exactly why I chose to talk about it. In the Listening to Our Lives course, the Wellsprings 2.0 that we teach, the week that we do on death, I call the dog ate my homework week. It is the week that most people choose to, oops, forgot to do it, call at the last minute, say, I can't be there. Sometimes that is the response if we don't want to face these difficult things. Sometimes also the most frequent response I hear when people are talking about their own death is this, I don't want to suffer. Of course, we understand that. None of us want to suffer, experience that long, drawn-out end of our lives when all we know is pain. But having been by the bedside of many people who are dying, I must tell you that suffering 
physical suffering is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen as we die is that we experience despair or meaninglessness or loneliness. And so I must tell you that I hope to at least have some preparation. And of course, for me, it starts now. I hope to know that I am dying because I want that one final chance to say I love you. I want that one final chance to reach out. I want that one final chance to say, you know what, I, I'm going to ask forgiveness. I want that one final chance to extend forgiveness. Now, of course, that really should start now. And it should not be for me when I know that the end is coming. And I know as well because I lost the most important person in my life to me, my mom, who just went suddenly and with no warning whatsoever at the age, same age as Thomas Merton, age 47, that I have that need to connect once more, I hope, when my end comes. When we die consciously, what we experience is the absolute sense that we are not alone, that we can set our hearts to beat in time with the rhythm of the hearts that matter most to us, and indeed, the beating of the hearts of this entire universe. But we also know that sometimes in life we don't have the choice. We don't have the chance to say one final I love you, one final opportunity. That sometimes the end just comes suddenly. And it is not fair. And we don't get to say goodbye in the way that we want. Our congregation this summer was touched by a very sudden, very unjust death. When Hannah Robb, age 13, was killed by a drunk driver just a couple miles away from here. At her funeral, and I must tell you that the most meaningful thing I can do at people's funerals and memorial services is when I feel and can be a part of bringing that person's memory, that person's voice, truly, truly into the room. And so we know that although there is separation and pain, that person is still there. They're still present. They're still very much amongst us. Hannah's great passion was that she rode and loved horses. Part of what I read at the conclusion of her funeral was beautiful because it expressed her. But it was even more beautiful because she taught us. Listen to her words. And recognize this came from the pen of a nine-year-old girl at the time that she wrote it. She's describing what it is to ride her horse. The sun is slowly starting to set. It paints a picture over the sky that is hard to describe. The air is crisp, but my surroundings are silent and peaceful. As I jump on, I feel calm, 100% relaxed. My mind erases everything that frightened me earlier. I looked out into the beautiful pasture, and I wished I would never have to halt my horse. Even though I am not certain of what will happen as I get older, one thing that I am certain about is that I will stay around horses because it is what I love to do. Hannah was absolutely right. And the lesson is there for all of us. Please listen to it. The first part is the hard part. It's the part that hurts it's the part that makes us feel as if we are, as one writer said, walking on Swiss cheese and just the holes of the Swiss cheese. We can't be certain. 
We cannot be absolutely certain. That kind of protection is not offered us as human beings. And it isn't fair sometimes how we go and leave this life. But the second part that she wrote about is the blessing. The deepest one. That what she was certain of, and she was certain of it and lived it out, and she would have continued living it out, which she did in the time that she had. What she was certain of is that she would do what she loved. She would express with her hands and her heart what was most powerful to her. This goes by the name of flow or fearlessness or fullness. But I think its deepest name is simply this, union. She had an experience that we heard in her words. She had an experience of union with life at its deepest level. Moving beyond fear, as she said, when she was jumping. Connected to nature, connected to her horse, connected to her very self and her soul. This is what we can practice when we practice our deaths. This is what we can practice when we know that we cannot be certain about the time that is given us. And so we take this anxiety and we replant it in much better soil which is the soil of our intention right here and right now. What we also know when we live in this way, and you hear this in Hannah's words as well, is that we know when we live in this way beyond fear and know this kind of union, we find it so much easier to love. We find it so much easier to be loving. Easier to remember that everyone in life, I mean, just look right now. Look at the people right around you. Seriously, please do it. Look at them. Folks, you've come to be born, and in one way or another, you're dying. Let that be a source of the deepest kindness there is that you can offer each other. Started with baseball, I'm going to end with baseball. Bang the drum slowly, an old movie, late 60s, early 70s, one of Robert De Niro's first movies. He plays a third, second-string catcher on a team that's kind of like the New York Mets, of Miracle Mets of 1969. And he's kind of a forgotten-about kind of kid. Until one day he gets, he gets a sentence, a death sentence, that he will probably be dead before the end of the season. And as this knowledge starts to leak out, people treat him differently. People treat him differently, and his best friends with the best pitcher on the team. And he asked them one day, people are being kind to you, aren't they? And this is the Robert De Niro character's response. He said, everybody knows everybody is dying. That's why people are as good as they are. Turn and face each other again. Don't forget Wake up. Don't forget. Cherish each other. Cherish this very moment. Cherish the absolute miraculous blessing that somehow this universe, so abundant in both joy and suffering, have called you into being and that you are here. Here in the midst of your pain and your pleasure and your happiness and your joy. And please do not take it for granted. Please wake up. That's what we are called here to do together.
Amen. May you live in blessing.